These are surprising words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After all that we have already read about human nature in Romans, these are surprising words. This is because Romans tells us that we, that as humans, we are great sinners. Romans chapters 1 through 7 paint a very dark picture of human nature. Chapter 1 tells us that mankind knows that there is a God. And that at least some things about who He is are obvious via general revelation. All that that means in plainer terms is that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go outside on a starry night and look up and observe the vast, orderly, and beautiful universe that we live in and realize that the only plausible explanation is that there is a Creator. Therefore, both life itself and the bounty provided within the universe for the sustenance of life and for the enrichment of life are gifts from our Creator. But Romans chapter 1 tells us that although mankind knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Instead, they, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Doesn't mankind go to great lengths to deny the obvious? Which is more rational? To posit a creator or to posit the random, spontaneous organization of atoms and molecules into the orderly and beautiful universe that we live in today? If I took off my watch and we disassembled it, and then we threw all the parts into my dryer at home. Even though all the parts are there, and even though some motion is present, which would lead the parts to bump into each other, you can leave that thing running for billions of years, and this watch will never reassemble itself. It would be irrational to think that it would. How much more irrational is it to believe that all of the atoms and the molecules of this universe have organized themselves randomly, spontaneously, without superintendence into what we have today, when this is infinitely more complex than a watch. We so often, as humans, choose irrationality and call it enlightenment, knowledge, Wisdom. As Romans says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here we are all these years later, calling boys girls and girls boys, and denying the traditional gender categories of plastic potatoes, because calling him Mr. Potato Head 
would make you a bigot. Yes, sadly, this is a real story, a true story. Quote from Hasbro, the manufacturer of he who is now just called Potato Head, or, or, or it, or Z, which is now just called Potato Head. Here's a quote from Hasbro. Hasbro is making sure all feel welcome in the Potato Head world by officially dropping the Mr. from the Mr. Potato Head brand name and logo to promote gender equality and inclusion. End quote. Okay, got it. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And Romans doesn't ease up. Are people basically good? No. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, Romans 1 goes on to say, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Which, with that last bit, simply means this. They're not like, well, I know it's bad, but I do it anyway. They're like, no, 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 it's not even bad. It's good that I do it, and it's good if you do it too. They not only do such things, but give approval to others to do them as well. Both Jews and Greeks, now we move along in Romans. Here's an excerpt from Romans 3. And I'm not exhausting this topic. I'm just showing you a sampling of what Romans says about human nature. Both Jews and Greeks, that is, not Jews only, but also Gentiles. And not Gentiles only, but also Jews. The whole world then, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. Wow. I mean, that, surely that's a hyperbole. None is righteous? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is no hyperbole. This is, this is what Romans says about human nature. There is none righteous. Not just... A select few. When I was growing up, we used to get a television signal from across the border in the U.S. And there was advertisements recruiting young men to join the uh, American military. And one was an advertisement for the Marines. And I don't remember all of the details, but the constant slogan that we always heard was, at the end of the commercial, the few, the proud, the Marines. Not, 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 there are a few righteous, the few, the proud, the Marines. Not, there are a few righteous, the few, the proud, the reformed. Not, there are a, a few righteous, the few, the proud, the self-disciplined, 
that there are none righteous. No, not one. Uh, uh, okay, okay, I get it. Non-righteous, no, not one, in our natural state. But what about Christians? After all, Romans 6 says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, some are good, right? They've been raised to walk in newness of life, right? Nope. Sorry to disappoint you. But even the apostle acknowledges in 719, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Yes, there is a qualitative change when somebody becomes a new creation, when somebody is raised to walk in newness of life, but it's not such a thorough qualitative change that now somebody is righteous and there's an exception to the rule. There is not such a qualitative change that a person is no longer worthy of condemnation. Paul cannot mean in Romans 8.1 that there is nothing worthy of condemnation in us when he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He does not mean there is nothing worthy of condemnation in us because that's not true of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, nor is that true of even believers. Even in believers, you will find that which is worthy of condemnation. Even in those who have been raised to walk in newness of life, there is remaining corruption which is worthy of condemnation. And so you can't understand Paul in Romans 8.1 to be saying there is nothing in us worthy of condemnation. There is much worthy of condemnation in us. And aren't so many people quick to point it out? We are constantly on the receiving end of criticism and disapproval. I just don't mean just we as Christians, just we as humans are constantly on the receiving end of criticism and disapproval. Whether explicitly or implicitly, the message comes to us all. You deserve condemnation. The influence of cancel culture has made many people quick to condemn and cast off those who might dare to disagree with them. Just one misstep. Just say something wrong. Just do something wrong. And all of a sudden, you're defriended on Facebook. You lose your job. People shun you, etc., etc. We are quick and becoming increasingly quick to condemn those who disagree with us. Just as humans, this is what is happening around us right now. Yes, there are nice things on social media. Cute kittens and you know fluffy little hamsters and funny memes and stuff but doesn't social media largely consist of posts extolling the virtues of one's own tribe and condemning those who disagree isn't that largely what Facebook is isn't that largely what whatever else whatever other social medias are 
You like Trump? Condemned. You like Biden? Condemned. You support the organization Black Lives Matter? Condemned. You don't support the organization Black Lives Matter? Condemned. You went outside for a walk? Outside the specified exercise window in the lockdown? Condemned. You stayed home, abided by the rules, and didn't protest like a dumb little sheep? Condemned. You think Mr. Potato Head and Bruce Jenner and the gargantuan transgender athletes that are dominating female sports are actually males? Condemned. You see, it doesn't actually matter where you are on the spectrum or what position you hold or what stand you take. Wherever you choose to plant your flag, there are people out there ready to condemn you. You believe this? Condemned. You don't believe this? Condemned. Condemned if you do, condemned if you don't. We are constantly on the receiving end of criticism and disapproval. And Satan joins the chorus. Called the accuser in the pages of scripture. He and his malevolent horde are quick to whisper to us that we are unworthy and deserving of condemnation. Doubtless, much of the condemnation that we receive is unwarranted. But in various ways, we are often reminded of what is actually true. We are great sinners. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said in his old age, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Evidently, he learned Romans well, because Romans tells us that yes, we are great sinners, but also that Christ is a great Savior. Romans 1.16 tells us that there is salvation for sinners. The same chapter that talks about how we suppress the truth and unrighteousness and are this whole litany of wickedness and abominations also tells us that there is a gospel which means good news, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both to Jews and to Gentiles. In other words, there is gospel, good news for the whole world, salvation for the whole world. Romans 3 tells us that this good news consists of the twin gifts of Christ's righteousness and Christ's propitiation, both to be received by faith. We take His righteousness as a gift and clothe ourselves with it. But what about the sins that we've already committed and the punishment that they deserve? We lay hold of Christ's cross work, His wrath-bearing death on the cross, which is another way of saying propitiation. We take hold of the propitiation that He made for our sins at the cross and we receive it also as a gift by faith and we hold on to it like a criminal holds on to a legal pardon. 
Jesus gives righteousness in the place of our sin. And He gives propitiation in the place of a death sentence that was hanging over our heads. Those who are in Christ Jesus are beneficiaries of this gift or these gifts if you want to break it down into the two sides of the same coin. That righteousness and that propitiation. It is those who are in Christ Jesus who are beneficiaries of this salvation. As Luther also said, faith unites the soul with Christ as a spouse with her husband. Everything which Christ has becomes the property of the believing soul. Everything which the soul has becomes the property of Christ. Christ possesses all blessings and eternal life. They are thenceforth the property of the believing soul. The believing soul has all its iniquities and sins. They thenceforth become the property of Christ. By believing, we come to possess the assets of Christ Jesus. And He owns our liabilities. And He discharges our obligations. Union with Christ is like a poor, ruined bride with debts she could never pay coming into a marriage union with a wealthy man who could more than discharge all of her obligations and render her richly supplied. This is what Luther is saying. We are great sinners, yes. But the question is asked at the end of Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is a great Savior. Russell Moore from Southern Seminary was on MSNBC a few years back. And he was asked if he had any reply to Donald Trump's accusation that he was, quote, a nasty guy with no heart, end quote. Moore responded saying, we sing worse things about ourselves in our hymns on Sunday morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, has saved a wretch like me. I am a nasty guy with no heart, which is why I need forgiveness of sins and redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How utterly disarming of the condemnation that Trump was trying to heap upon him. Moore acknowledged that yes, he is a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. In a similar manner, Luther said, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably, since Christ died for sinners. Again, Luther was a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. 
Often we want to defend ourselves, at least internally, and argue the point. I am not worthy of condemnation. Don't you dare suggest that I am worthy of condemnation. <clears throat> and sometimes this is correct. People will try to condemn us about anything and everything. And sometimes you do have to take a stand against false guilt and false accusations. But sometimes, in fact, many times the criticism is warranted. Many times the things that are thrown at us don't stick. They're not really relevant. But many times the criticism should and does stick. It's legitimate. We are great sinners. It should be no surprise when people make well-founded accusations against us and about us. Sometimes to argue then, I am not worthy of condemnation would be to deny the facts. In these cases, instead of arguing against your guilt, admit it. Like Luther or Russell Moore. We are great sinners. Don't argue the charge. Charges brought against us by the prosecution. He is a great sinner. Don't argue the charge. But argue the verdict. Non-gospel reasoning goes like this. People worthy of condemnation should be condemned. Gospel reasoning, to the contrary, goes like this. People worthy of condemnation may be justified in and through Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Justification is something that God does whereby He counts us as being righteous because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ Jesus and He pardons our sins. He doesn't say not guilty. He pardons you see the difference? If a criminal goes into the courtroom and the judge says not guilty when he is guilty full well, then that's actually an unjust sentence. But we've all heard about cases where somebody in power has granted a pardon to somebody who was guilty and was convicted. And the pardon means that they're released from all punishment with respect to that crime. That's what's happening in justification. It's not not guilty. It's not God saying, no, 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 this person has done nothing worthy of condemnation. God knows full well that we have. That's why he wrote Romans 1 to 7. That's why he told us that there is none righteous, no, not one. God is not naive. He knows you're a sinner. He knows I'm a sinner. So God doesn't sit there in the, the courtroom as a clueless judge and a naive judge and say, I think they're pretty good people. God knows full well that we are guilty, so He doesn't say not guilty. What He does is He grants a pardon. He says, they have a surety which has answered all of the obligations with respect to justice in their case. Christ Jesus has offered up obedience the obedience that the law demands on the behalf of the defendant. 
And Christ Jesus has borne in himself the penalty that the defendant's sin deserves. And so yes, they are guilty, but given the fact that their sentence has already been served by another in their place, I now consider this matter dealt with. It's part of it. There's no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now obviously, this doesn't mean that there is no sin in those that are in Christ Jesus. This also doesn't mean that you may not criticize anyone who is in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that there is nothing in you worthy of condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. So if a brother or a sister comes to you and says, brother or sister, I think you sinned in such and such a way, you don't say, well, there is no condemnation, so don't talk to me about that. If you read the scriptures and the scriptures reveal to you your sin, you don't say, well, I just ignore that part because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Obviously, the fact that there is no condemnation doesn't mean that we are now no longer sinners and no longer liable to correction and that no one may make any judgment with respect to us and our behavior and our words and our actions and so on and so forth. But there is a big difference between the doctor who identifies and points out a problem in you in order to help you and assist you and save your life versus the executioner who extinguishes your life because of a problem that he identifies in you. You see the difference? One is correction. The other is condemnation. One is making a judgment. The other one is executing a sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has pardoned you. You are no longer liable to divine punishment if you are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that the scripture can't correct you or that brothers and sisters in Christ can't correct you, etc., etc. That's not what that means. Neither does it mean that you are no longer liable to any temporal punishment. If you are in Christ Jesus and you do something illegal and the police catch you and you go to court and the judge condemns you, you don't say, you have no right to condemn me because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're going to have to serve your time. You're answerable to the temporal courts. Even say something like church discipline. You may still be liable to some kind of uh, temporal punishment or discipline for your actions. What this means, though, is that if you are truly in Christ Jesus, you're not going to hell. If you are truly in Christ Jesus, whatever sentences anyone on this earth may pass, including the magistrate and including the church, is not going to damn you. It's not going to sink you down to hell. 
There is no condemnation with respect to the divine court of law for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may stand there on the last day and Satan and the rest of the demons and everybody who knew you in life may gather around and they may dredge up every wicked thing you've done and bring them before God. Well, look at what he said here. Look at what he did here. Look at this action. Look at that action. Look at this inaction. Look how he failed to respond the right way in this situation. Look how inconsistent he was in this area. Look at this. Look at that. But all of these things, all of these things will not be sufficient to condemn you. All they will show is that you are a great sinner. And you can stand there on that day in God's courtroom, as it were, and say, yes, I concede, I am a great sinner. My hope is not that I am not a great sinner. I'm here today acknowledging I'm a great sinner. I plead guilty. God knows I'm a great sinner. He told me as much in His Word. God knows full well I'm a great sinner. I know full well I'm a great sinner. But one other thing I know. Christ is a great Savior. And Jesus' righteousness is mine by faith. And so I plead His obedience, not mine. And with respect to the punishment that I deserve for my sin, I plead His cross work. Jesus died for that. And God accepts that argument. There is nothing for you to answer for, Christian, on that last day. Not because God is unjust and is going to turn a blind eye to your sin, but because for the very fact that God is just. And that Christ has offered up what is required by justice for you. For the very reason that God is just and that Christ has sufficiently answered for your sin and for your disobedience and has clothed you with His righteousness. For that very reason, there is going to be no condemnation. You are a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And so as we go through this world then, it can be discouraging to encounter all of the condemnation that everyone wants to keep up on. Try to be humble and let what needs to stick, stick in terms of criticism. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Be teachable. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Don't be like that. Listen, learn, grow, be taught. But don't be overwhelmed by the tsunami of condemnation that is constantly coming at us. 
Rest assured that ultimately, ultimately, in the only court that really matters for you, Christian, there is no condemnation. At the end of this same chapter, Romans 8, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Everybody wants to volunteer for this position. I'll condemn him. I'll testify against him. I'll testify against her. I'll condemn. But Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. This tsunami of condemnation will come. But look, if God has said for you, there is no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus, then yes, you may be answerable to temporal condemnation, just or unjust. And along the way, yes, you're going to receive criticisms that you should be humble and teachable about. Let those things stick. But don't be overwhelmed by the tsunami of criticism and condemnation that comes at you. Take comfort that ultimately, if God has pardoned you, ultimately no one can overrule that and bring you into condemnation. Yes, you are a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. We are great sinners. God knows it. We know it. Satan knows it. The people on your Facebook, uh, connected to your Facebook account know it. We are great sinners. But Christ is a great Savior. 